Welcome to the Lift Church podcast. We pray that this message encourages you and inspires you to live up to your God-given potential. How many of you have ever said to a person, how you going, without actually meaning to have a conversation? You mean, you mean hello, but we don't say hello, we say how you going? And one of the strangest ones, which I still don't know what the origin of it is, is, is that in Australia we use the word, we wag school. And it's like, what does that mean? If you look at the original word, what does it mean? Does anyone actually know where wagging came from? No one, but we use it here. And being a Singaporean at 15, I'm now Australian, by the way, at 15, coming over here and going to school, and people are like, oh, yeah, I'm going to wag ninth period or whatever it is. And I was like, what do you mean by a wag ninth period? You're going to move it around? You know? But there's another phrase that I think is universal in its uh, usage. And I think it's one of those phrases that has completely lost its meaning. And that phrase is, excuse me. You know, there are certain times where we use it when you're, let's say you've got hot soup and you're going through a corridor because everyone does that and, and you're kind of carrying this and you're, excuse me, excuse me, get it out of the way and you're like, excuse me, it makes sense, yeah? I think the first time I learned how to use this phrase was when I sneezed. You know, anyone have parents that teach you manners and you're supposed to, <laughs> yeah, my parents did, really good thing. And when you sneeze, you're supposed to say, excuse me, right? Did anyone ever think, why do you have to say excuse me when you sneeze? Is it because you have just interrupted a conversation and therefore you have to apologize for interrupting? I think for me, it's because my sneezes are really loud. <laughs> if you are on one side of the house and I'm on the other side of the house, you will know that I have to sneeze. The, the windows will be rattling a little bit. <laughs> Some of the roof tiles are kind of knocked out of place. And the reason why I sneeze loud, there's a reason for it. I, I'm practical. It's because when I was young, I read this article, and it was really interesting because um, that article popped up again. Uh, literally, one of my Facebook friends shared it, and I was like, you see, it's a thing, it's a real thing. But uh, research has shown that if you hold a sneeze in, you can rupture your throat. You can rupture your throat. It literally is a scientific thing that when you hold the force of your sneeze in, you can damage yourself. And so for me, it's, I don't care how small the sneeze in, I'm getting it out. It ain't going to affect my throat. It's not going to affect my brain. I don't want a nosebleed. I want the sneeze out so that I can continue my life. And so having to apologize that my sneeze is eardrum shattering is okay with me. I will sneeze and I will apologize for it. But excuse me has other usages. Have you ever heard a person use a special tone with excuse me? Yeah? And I, excuse me. And his close cousin, I beg your pardon. I beg your pardon is even more hilarious to me. It's like you're begging for someone's pardon. Can you see how graphic that is? It's like coming to someone, I beg. That looks like more like a, a proposal. <laughs> you know, you're like begging for someone's uh, pardon. It, and, and you're using sarcasm, and it's supposed to mean that you want the other person to apologize for something. You know what I mean? And, and it's like, excuse me. It's such a strange thing. And, and what I find even more hilarious is that the Bible has an account of a person saying, excuse me, to Jesus. Do you want to read it? Yeah. Do you want to read it? Awesome. Some of you guys are Christians here. That's good. 
He actually liked the Bible. That was a good thing. I love the Bible. And in John chapter 5, we'll be reading a passage from there. And it says this, Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Anyone hear a bit of an excuse me tone to this, or is it just me? Anyone ever read this and go, yeah, something a bit strange is happening? Maybe if I set the tone for you a little bit. Jesus, Jesus is coming, he's come to Jerusalem, right? And the pools of Bethesda, which is what they are called, uh, is just outside the city walls. Jesus did not need to go out the city walls. He could have done whatever he wanted to do. The whole festival that he was there for could have been all done in Jerusalem. But for some reason, Jesus decided to visit the pools of Bethesda, which tells me that something was going on inside of Jesus, possibly a guiding, guiding voice of the Holy Spirit. Maybe he just knew that someone outside the walls of Jerusalem needed a touch of God. Yeah? And then on the other hand, you have... This man who has been an invalid for 38 years. I'm not even 38 yet. And I can't imagine living my whole life paralyzed. This man has lived a vast majority of his life paralyzed. And we find him at the pools of Bethesda. Now the pools of Bethesda is not actually a Jewish run place. It was actually a Greek run place. And it, uh, there was this ongoing myth, legend, I don't know how true it is, but the myth or the legend that went on in that place is that every now and then, an angel would come and would dip his finger, stir the water up a little bit, and the first person to jump in would receive the healing. Sounds pretty crazy and out there, yeah? Well, this man had been there for over three decades waiting for that miracle to take place. Can you imagine so believing one crazy idea because you are so desperate for your healing that you would go to that place and wait for over three decades for that one little bit of healing. You get where I'm going so far? This guy is desperate for healing. You wouldn't be listening to a myth, a legend, if you didn't believe that you wanted that piece of healing. So you get Jesus who knows that there is something going on. The Holy Spirit is guiding him to this place. And then you get a desperate man who has been paralyzed for 38 years and waiting for a miracle. And they are both in this same space in this same time. Now, I think that what Jesus did... Because it says that he learned that this man had been uh, uh, in this condition for a long time. I reckon that what was taking place, in my imagination, this is just me making the story more interesting 
Because sometimes the Bible leaves out a lot of details. I love details. Beck told you I love numbers. I love those kind of details. So I'm imagining Jesus walks out there, and he sees that there's a crowd of people. And I think he goes, you know what? I think God wants me to heal someone. And he starts talking to people, and he starts asking, who has been here the longest? I reckon everyone in that place knew that there was a man who had been there before anyone else. Everyone else in there had been there for a long time, possibly, maybe some for a short time, but everyone knew that that guy was there before anyone else got there. It was a 38-year man. Let's call him 38-year man. We don't have a name for him, so I'm going to call him 38-year man. And, and, and so everyone was kind of knowing that Jesus was talking to people. It's like, hey, how long have you been here? Oh, I've been here for three months. I've got a bung leg and really hoping for healing. And, and, and it's like, oh, cool, cool. Who's been here longer than you? Like, oh, you know, if you want to find the longest one, I think it's that guy over there. He just seems to have been here before anyone else I know. Goes to another person. It's like, yeah, yeah, 38-year man, 38-year man. He finally gets to this guy and he says, do you want to get well? And his response is, Excuse me. Excuse me. Can you hear the tone and the heart behind him? It's like, when people say, excuse me, often means that something else is going on in the back of their head. And I imagine that this guy, in his head, he was saying, because he might not even have known Jesus. He might not have heard of his reputation. So this is random guy with no problems in his body, just walking around all these paralyzed people, blind people. And, and, and he comes to him and he says, do you want to get well? And he's like, excuse me, if you knew my story, if you knew what I've gone through to be where I am right now, you wouldn't be asking that question. If you knew me, Excuse me, why would you ask me such a question? And his response has a tinge of hurt about it. And I find it interesting because for a man who was desperate for healing, he found it really hard to say yes to Jesus. For a man who was desperately waiting for a miracle, he was... Lying face to face, I won't say standing, but he probably wasn't. He was probably lying, and Jesus was talking to him, and he couldn't say yes to him. Could not say yes. Instead, his response was, Sir, I have no one, no one to help me. And while I'm trying to get in someone else, this man was revealing a deeper need and a deeper hurt that he had picked up over the 38 years of his condition. There was a defensiveness in his tone. There was a reflex in him that was like, you don't get to talk to me like that. And, you know, I was reading a book a little while ago. It was written by a, a psychotherapist who has gone on to become a world-leading um, conflict resolution person. In fact, he's gone to America uh, to negotiate peace between rivaling gangs. He has gone into the Middle East to, to negotiate peace between rivaling tribes. This is the kind of guy, like he's been employed by the UN, the UN, 
to bring peace to place. He's a pretty good conflict negotiator. And he writes this book, and, and I was reading this book a little while ago, and, and he brought up this um, story. And I love this story because of how relatable it is to all of us. And basically, there was this couple, this married couple, who were kind of at the end of their rope. They, they were just sick and tired of their, their, their marriage, the, the state of their relationship, and, and they came to him, and, and they were going to give it one last shot before they were out of there. They were like, man, this marriage is just going to break down. So they were there, and um, uh, Dr. Rosenberg, that's his name, he, Rosenberg? Yes, Rosenberg. He, he was talking to them, and he said, what is it that you need? He asked the wife, what is it that you need? The wife thought for a moment, and then she said, I just want him to listen to me. Guess what the husband's response was? Any husband here want to give a guess? And your wife said, I want... The wife looks at you and says, I just want you to listen to me. What are you going to say? I am. I'm listening. I have always been listening. I knew that you were going to say that. I knew exactly what was going to come out of your mouth because it's so predictable. So he said, I... Listen to you. Guess what the wife's response is? No, you don't. No, you don't. And then back and forth. Yes, I do. No, I don't. Yes, I do. No, I don't. World War Three was threatening to break out in that room. And Dr. Rosenberg calms them down and then asks the wife again. and said, what is it that you are looking for? When you say you want him to listen, what does that look like to you? And I, she struggled with that question, said a few more things that upset her husband, and da-da-da-da-da. Finally got to a point where she was just like, I just want him to acknowledge what he's heard. I want him to look at me, give me eye contact, you know, and then, and then repeat back what I'm saying. So I know that he has actually listened to me. And he, he was like, is that what you were looking for? Why didn't you tell me earlier? I could have done that. I can look at you. I'm not wrong looking at you. And I can repeat back what you're saying. That's what's going to help you out. In that moment, they receive a resolution to the conflict that has been plaguing their marriage for, for years and years and years, all because they weren't really communicating. And when people have this excuse me kind of a moment, it's because communication has actually broken down. And, and Dr. Rosenberg said that when it comes to relational issues, uh, couple issues, all that kind of stuff, he said every single one of them is resolvable in 20 minutes once you get to a point where both parties have been able to articulate what it is, what it is, that, what it is that they're really needing in a practical, usable way. The 20-minute part is the easy part. The hard part is getting these two people to connect and then to communicate their needs. That's the hard part. That's the tricky part. That's the crazy. And all of you are married. All, if you've ever been in a relationship and you've had a fight before, a friendship, you would notice that the hard part is that you're not listening. You are going on that track and I'm on this track and we are not meeting. And the more that you keep going on this track and that person goes on that track, there's no resolution. But the moment there is a... Oh, is that, is that what you really want? It? it often is very doable. And that made me think of a verse in the Bible. 
which says this in James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. It says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend them on your own pleasures. And I read this many times before, and it used to be like, yeah, 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 God just wants me to want what he wants. Anyone read that into that passage? Really? Yes, I've seen a few nods. You're still with me. Good. And I used to read into this like, all God wants me to do is to want what he wants. But if I want something that's not what he wants, he doesn't give a rip. That's what I used to read into this passage. You know what I mean? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Because you've got conflicting desires within you. But the more I kind of thought about this whole idea of not being able to articulate what is it that we really need, the more a different picture began to form in my mind. And I want to share this picture with you because this has been a new revelation for me. It's been something that has been revolutionizing my relationship with God as well as relationship with other human beings. And I want this with you guys because I believe that all of us are looking for relationships that mean something. We're looking for relationships that can go a little bit deeper than a, you're not listening, I'm listening, you're not listening, I'm listening. We don't want that kind of relationship. Those relationships drain us. They take away the life. They suck the life out of us. And, and, and for some reason, we don't seem to be able to connect properly and we're always using excuse me's instead of truly connecting. And I think we do that with God. I think we do that with God. See, the first part of it, I understand you've got battling desires within you, and that's something that I struggle with. There are things within me that I struggle with. There's still a sinful nature in me that I'm still trying to crucify and put under God's control and all that kind of stuff. But the thing that got me about this verse that I really don't like is the line that says, you do not have because you do not ask God. You do not have because you do not ask God. And I was like, you don't know me, James. You think you know me, but you lived 2,000 years ago. You did. You don't know me. You don't get to tell me that I didn't ask God. You know, part of the uh, journey that Beck and I have been on over the last two and a half years is that we've been trying to sell our house. Many of you guys know this because you've been part of Lived and we've not been hiding from the fact that this is a saga. Uh, it's, it's crazier than Twilight. Is more dramatic than Twilight. It's better than Twilight. Stay tuned. But we would love you to pray with us because our buyer's finances should be approved by this Wednesday. Should. And then we get to move on in our lives and put Twilight behind us. <laughs> but you know, two and a half years. Guess what, James? I have been asking God a lot of times for him to sell our house. Many times. So many prayers. Two and a half years. Was it 365 days each year? 700 plus prayers, God. And James, you don't get to tell me that I don't have because I didn't ask. Now, we only found out the last month that our house actually got an offer, which is fantastic. But before then, we had no idea when this would finish, yeah? And so we were praying and we were praying and we were praying. But what I realized with hindsight is that looking back at this last couple of years, I have been coming to God 
and asking, but I haven't really been asking properly. It's been one of those moments where it's like, God, are you listening? And God's like, yes, I am. He's like, no, you're not. <laughs> moments. So let me, let me try to help you see what I was doing. These chairs represent a prayer each. And like I said, 700 prayers. These are six. So you can imagine that there's a lot more chairs representing the prayers that I prayed to God about selling of our house. So imagine that I just first started trying to sell the house. When we first put it on the market, I was like, dear God, we love you and you love us. So sell our house, please, because you love us, yeah? Prove it. I didn't say that. It's kind of in there somewhere, but it was a bit of a, sell our house, please. And then it's like, okay, okay, maybe that was a bit selfish, so I need to pray a bit differently. God, please sell our house, because when you sell our house, we get to meet all of our lovely neighbors in the town of Vic Park and invite them to church. And really, you want us to evangelize to our friends and family, and so that's really necessary for us, so please sell the house. Three months had passed, nothing is going on. It's like, God, it's been a while now. Please sell our house. Excuse me for being a little bit frustrated because you should have sold a house by now. <laughs> and then it goes on. And it's like, God, this is really frustrating. And I don't like where this is going. And um, now everyone is looking at us as well. You know, we told the church that we're trying to sell the house. The house isn't sold. And so everyone thinks that you don't like us. And that's not good for the church. So please sell the house. You think this is funny? You try selling a house for two and a half years. And you realize that by the time I hit the fifth prayer, fifth representative prayer, it's just like, God, come on, man. What the heck is going on? He said, you know all things and you give the desires to those who love you. Well, right now I'm not feeling very loved. So God, please just sell our house. You know, what I realized I was doing was that in the midst of, and imagine that there's a whole wall of chairs now, out of the last two and a half years of praying these prayers. But what I did with these prayers is that they weren't necessarily connected with my heart. They weren't necessarily connected to who I was. They were more connected to an analysis of the situation that was in front of me. That's really important. It sounds very abstract and a little bit lame, but this is really important. Most of the time, when we have conflict, what we do, or when we talk to people, we give them our analysis of the situation. The couple that were talking were, were with, uh, with uh, Dr. Rosenberg, they were saying, the wife was saying, I want you to listen. The analysis was that I don't believe that he's listening to me. She didn't say, I would like assurance that you are listening to me because when you don't give me that assurance, I start to feel a little bit neglected. Or when you are on your phone while I'm talking to you, I start to think that you don't really care about what I have to say. And I end up feeling worthless. I end up feeling that the value inside of me has been taken away. I reckon if people started being more open and vulnerable about their real needs, it wouldn't get to a point of, excuse me. When we give our analysis of the situation, 
It's kind of interesting because we get to divorce ourselves from the situation. Imagine God's on the other side of this wall, and I start to bring my request to God, and my requests are not really requests from my heart. They were requests to change the situation. They were requests regarding my analysis of what is going on. But what was really going on in here is, God, I want some assurance that being in Vic Park is where we're meant to be. See, Beck and I prayed for many things over uh, in, in getting ready for lift. And one thing that we didn't get a bolt of lightning for, and many people ask us, we, we hold these uh, groups called Ground Floor, which helps you understand a bit more about lift. And, and more often than not, people ask us, why did you choose Vic Park? And the honest truth is, I love Vic Park, but we chose Vic Park because we chose Vic Park. There's nothing very spiritual about it. I didn't have a fortune cookie that says you need to be in Vic Park. There's no Vic Park in the Bible that I could have turned to. And there's nothing spiritual. We chose Vic Park because we like Vic Park and we thought that was a great place to be in. And we knew that there was a church that was needed in there. We know that, 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 that a church like ours was required in, in, in a place and it didn't necessarily need to be us, but we chose to be in Vic Park. And so I thought maybe, and this was something that was unknown to me, by the way. Quite often our analysis of the situation is not conscious is a very natural response to what we're doing. And I didn't really recognize this until a little while ago when I was like, hey, if I actually sell and move into Vic Park, it would be a cool little sign that we are meant to be in Vic Park. And then when people ask us, why are you in Vic Park? Like, we live in Vic Park. It's easier. It's easier to say I live in Vic Park. Let's say I live 20 minutes out of Vic Park, but I just love Vic Park so much that I come to Vic Park all the time and I love the coffee there. And, uh, it's too hard. I live in Vic Park. Oh, makes sense. You live there. That's why you have a church. You get what I mean? It's, like, it's just natural. And, and, and yeah, so many people tell us that when you move into Vic Park, it's just going to be amazing and, and your church is going to grow and all that kind of stuff, which is all stuff that we wanted. And so I was like, God, if your hand is truly on us being in Vic Park, sell the house. But in the, the sell the house bit, it's still an analysis. It's like, God, I just want assurance. Strip it all back. God, I just want assurance that I'm in the right place. And then there was another part of me, it's like with our finances, Beck and I give um, uh, a lot of time to, 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 to lift and, and we choose to, and I'm not complaining about it, uh, but selling the house would release a whole bunch of finances which would make our lives a little bit more comfortable. And being a head of a house and being the, uh, uh, the, the male of the, uh, the provider, if you will, of the house, and I was thinking in my mind, I was like, man, if we have that amount of money in the bank, it would look really good. It'll make me feel a lot better. I didn't talk to that about to God. God doesn't know, need to know that. God needs to know this stuff. God needs to know my wall. But he doesn't need to know this. What's going on here? And then after we started sharing about selling the house, it was like, man, imagine if I have this story about how long we've waited and then we sell the house, everyone's going to be like, wow, God came through for you, such a great story. You're such a great pastor, mate. <laughs> Don't ever share that with God. God didn't need to know that stuff. He needs my wall of analysis. Sell the house because we are doing your work, God. So this is a fair exchange, isn't it? See, when we come up with analysis and we start sharing our analysis with God and with other people, what we're really saying is, excuse me. We suddenly divorce ourselves from what is taking place. We suddenly don't need to come face to face with the person that we're talking to. 
We just have to look good enough and detached enough so that this stays hidden and safe. Many of us are hiding behind our walls of excuse me. Now, there's another story that I was reading from Dr. Rosenberg. He talked about a young woman who had been desperately looking for relationships. And she'd gone from relationship to relationship. They're always broken down, and she started to think that there was a problem with her. And so she went to the doctor, and she was like, what's wrong with me? And so the doctor asked her, what is it that you want? What is it that you need? And, and she said, I just want to be loved. And then he went, okay, what does that mean to you? Love is such a big word. Do you just want chocolates every day, roses? What is it that you want? And she said, like, I, I just want to be loved. Sometimes we cover up what, what's going on inside with these big terms. So I'm just waiting for God to speak. It's like because God's holding back from you. Or are you expecting God to speak to you from a bolt of lightning? What's your expectation? took a long time, but she finally got to a point where she had an aha moment at what was going on in her heart. And she said, you know what? I think that what it means to me to be loved is to have a person that can see my needs before I do and then to meet them before I'm aware of it. I want someone. This is not something you should hold on to, by the way. Something like this deep moment in my life. That's love. It's like, no. That's that person's analysis of what love is. Analysis of love is that there's this person that's going to meet all the needs before she even knows about it. And when she came face to face with analysis, that's what love is to me. The doctor asked her, is that realistic? And she was like, oh my gosh, no. I've pushed away many great guys because they weren't psychic. I think that story ends well. I don't quite remember. I think she does get married. She has a family and all that kind of stuff. But it all started because she actually came in touch with herself. Because not only does our wall of excuse me stop us from relating to people, we don't even know what's going on on the inside of us. And sometimes we're making terrible decisions. Why do you fight and quarrel? Because you do not ask. What causes fights and quarrels? We have these underlying desires, and sometimes when we don't even know what's going on the inside, we start to chuck up excuses, excuse me's, to fit the picture that we want. I'm just an introvert. I, I just don't do that stuff. I'm, I'm just like that. You know, I, 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 I've got enough on my plate. You don't really care. You don't really know where I've been. You don't really see me. See, the sad thing for this paralyzed 38-year man, 38-year paralyzed man, is that he got physical healing. The story goes on. After he gives his excuse me to Jesus, he, Jesus says, well, pick up your mat and walk. The man does. He picks up his mat. He rolls it up, and he walks off. Now, it happened to be a Sabbath, and the Jewish people at that time were extremely religious about what you can and can't do during the Sabbath. And so these religious leaders came up to him, and they said to him, why are you carrying your mat? And he said, because the guy who healed me said to. I said, who healed you? Guess what the man said? I don't know. 
Picture this, right? You've been waiting 38 years for healing. You've been sitting next to a mythical pool of angel stirring, waiting for your miracle to happen. Mr. Miracle Maker walks into your life and heals you, and you don't even know his name. That surprised me. I was like, what is wrong with you? You know, you have moments in life where you look at a person and it's like, how can you, what? <laughs> this is a moment that you don't even know that Jesus just healed you. Religious leaders walk off. Jesus comes back, finds this guy and says, oh, now you're well. Remember me? Now go and sin no more. Not something worse could happen to you, which is kind of strange. Another message for another day. But guess what that guy then does? He goes and finds the religious leaders who were questioning him. And he says, Jesus was the one who healed me. Do you know why he did that? In my mind, it's because he was looking out for number one. He was actually saying, I don't want to get in trouble for being the mat carrier on the Sabbath. I want to be the guy who was told by another guy who healed on the Sabbath, which is not allowed apparently, that, that that's the guy in trouble. I don't want to be in trouble. See, he got his physical need met. But guess what Jesus was referring to? He was referring to a deeper healing. His excuse me revealed that he was alone. That he was feeling like no one cared. No one gave a rip about him. Everyone else was going to jump ahead of him. That no one would look out for his needs ever. Jesus wanted to touch that need. But because of his excuse me, Jesus was not allowed anywhere close. So the man who was desperately looking for a miracle received it from the miracle maker. But he didn't receive the deeper miracle that God wanted to bring to him. See, some of us are saying yes to minor miracles in our life. But some of us are saying no way to the deeper work that God wants to do in us. This message really, in a roundabout way, is about saying we need to get better at being vulnerable. It's something that I'm learning. It's something that I'm not good at. I, I'm, I'm very good at building walls of excuse me's. I'm very good at putting on an appearance of having it all together and letting people think that I know what's happening. But deep inside, sometimes it's like, there's all this churning, all these things that are kind of going round and round and round and round and round and round, causing fights and quarrels in my life without me even knowing. And it's often because I haven't asked God. What does it mean I haven't asked God? Is like I've put my representative in front of God, but I've stayed away. See, God can be trusted with your heart. It's a lesson that I'm still learning, honestly. Even five years married, there's still a lot of walls that we've naturally just instinctively built over time. And Beck and I are having to work through them, say, hey, I think that's a wall there. What do you think is going on? Prod. Black stuff happens. You're not listening. I am listening. No, you're not. But how many of us want better relationships? 
How many of us want relationships that truly, truly get to the heart of the matter? How many of us want to know that God is truly for you? How many of you are done with being paralyzed, metaphorically speaking? So honest truth is God has got so much more for each and every single one of us. But some of us are happy with minor miracles rather than the deep work that God wants to do on us. I'm done with minor miracles. They are amusing. They're cool, but they disappear. Leave you one last story if you can get the band up. I was chatting with a young man, and the young man who was, you know, going through some stuff. So I was just chatting with him, and and as I was chatting, I was like, "Why, why are you getting into that kind of stuff? What's going on?" And and he he said to me, "Well, because that stuff gives me value." He actually got to a pretty deep point in in himself and said, "Well, that stuff gives me value." And I was like, "Wow." And so I started asking, I was like, so what about God? Where's God in this picture for you? I was like, yeah, I know that he loves me, but sometimes I don't really know that he does. See, what had happened in his life is that God loves me came in the form of goosebumps on the skin, on the back, when the music, when the lighting, when the preacher was awesome. So it was every Sunday when I was preaching, it was when he was in the right environment, but when he was at home, when he was at work, when he was with mates, whenever there wasn't an environment like this, practically for him, God didn't love him. Because God loves me when I feel, feel it emotionally, when, when it's there, but when that's not there, I don't know if God gets past my walls and really gets in. You know, some of us think that Christianity is just this moment I invite Jesus into my life. Boom, I'm all good. I'm all well. I can now be a miracle maker. I can now save the world. It's like, no, that's not how it works. Our relationship with God is very much like any other relationship. It takes time and it takes us taking off the walls of excuses that we have made so that we can come face to face with God. I love this song that we're about to sing because it says, I can see you now. It's an indication for me. It's a challenge for me because it doesn't say, you can see me now. It says, I can see you now. It doesn't say, God, I finally can see that. It's not, it's, you know what I mean? It's not like God finally recognized the need in me. It was like, no, I can finally see that God has been pursuing me. That that situation, God was working for my good. The, thing, the things that people have said to me were for my, for my good. That the struggles that I've had, the things that have been churning inside of me, it's not because people were looking down at me. I don't have to say, excuse me anymore. I can say thank you. See, we don't really worship God when we have our walls up. We worship our image of what God is supposed to do. You're supposed to meet those needs before I love you, God. 
And I'll be honest, many times in my life, I have been upset with God. I have been worried about whether He is truly able to provide for me and all that kind of jazz. And, and the more I'm going through my life, the more I realize that God is trustworthy. And He's also very good at handling our heart. The, the Psalms, one of the verses says, a broken and a contrite heart he will not despise. And, and I never know, knew what to do with that verse until I realized and I acknowledge that I'm not okay, that I'm not all together, that I don't have a perfect life and my heart is still corrupted and I've still got stuff that I'm needing to deal with. But in the midst of that brokenness, God is not going, you ugly, filthy human being. He's saying, come here because my love washes over that. I find it hilarious because I used to think that King David was the most whiny human being on the face of the planet. There's one book, I prefer Numbers to Psalms. Because Psalms sometimes sounds like a guy who's just having a massive 150 chapter whinge about how life sucks. But I recognize now, I'm learning to see that it's not that David was whinging, it was that David was pouring his heart out. And God says David was a man after his own heart, because he knew when to be vulnerable and open and go, this is not how I thought my life with you would go. This situation, this hurt, I wasn't expecting it. And I don't know what to do with it. It's in those moments of vulnerability that our love for God grows. And that's my prayer for you. So this morning, can we just sing this? I know that we're going a little bit over time. Can we just stand in this moment? Can we just sing this bridge together? Can it be our prayer to God? If you're in this moment and you, you realize that you've got walls in your heart that are stopping you from truly seeing God, try singing it from a place of, I really really want this thank you for tuning in today if you would like to find out more about lift check out our website at theliftchurch.com.au